Welcome to the Feeling Bookish podcast. In this episode, Robin Roman talks Sergio Bitol with translator George Henson. Enjoy. Well, welcome, and, and thank you, Heston, for that uh, introduction. This is Rob Fay. I'm joined, as always, uh, by my partner, Roman Sivkin. And today I am really, really happy uh, to introduce uh, a guest. Uh, his name is George Henson. He is a professor of Spanish language literature and translation um, at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies. And he is a translator of Spanish literature uh, with many credits to his name. Uh, and in particular of the Mexican writer Sergio Pitol. And so uh, George's work first came to me in the form of Pitol's uh, trilogy of memory. These, these three novels, three, I'm not sure what to call them, these three books, which are kind of um, genre combining, part memoir, part travelogue, part literary criticism. These, these books... Uh, which consist of the, the Magician of Vienna, The Journey, and The Art of Flight, um, kind of blew my mind. Uh, and I realized that the translator was on Twitter and active. And so it was wonderful to be able to thank George uh, for these books. Um, if you don't know Sergio Patol, uh, he did pass away in 2018 after a, a very long life, a very interesting life. Um, and he was the winner uh, of the Cervantes Prize in 2005, which is the most prestigious award uh, for literature in the Spanish language. So, so George, I just want to welcome you here at first before I start hammering you with questions. Uh, so welcome. And you're in Monterey, California. Is that where the college is located or the institute? I am. I'm in Monterey and we're having a cold day today. It's in the low 50s. Um, Ooh, okay. You know, when I saw Middlebury, I instantly, as a New Englander, I thought, "Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a college in Vermont." <laughs> right. Well, and it is actually. Uh, and I got my master's degree from Middlebury College in Vermont. Um, oh. Middlebury acquired the institute about ten years ago. Prior to the acquisition, uh -huh. it was known as the Monterey Institute. So now gotcha. we, we were able to keep our our initials, our acronym is still M-I-S, or M-I-I-S. Uh, gotcha. We call ourselves MISS. Okay. So thank well, you very nice. much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. So, you know, I want to start out this way. Um, when people think about, um, in North America, when they think about uh, uh, literature from Latin America, I mean... The names that come to mind are are pretty familiar. Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Carlos Fuentes, Borges, Bolaño, Isabella Allende, uh, Yosa, or even uh, the Cuban writer Alejo Carpentier. But why is it that we don't know Sergio Patol? I mean, I guess the I guess the answer might be that they weren't translated until recently. But why weren't they translated? Um, you know what? Can you kind of set the scene for us? How come he's become someone we've come to rather late? Well, I, I think you've already uh, put your finger on it. He wasn't translated. Um, I argue, and this is nothing new, many people also argue this, that the, the Latin American boom was primarily a translation phenomenon 
rather than a literary phenomenon. Certainly it was a literary phenomenon. But no one would have known these writers, Garcia, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, uh, outside of outside of their their countries, Colombia in Garcia Marquez's case, or Vargas Llosa, Peru. These were young writers when they began to be translated, Cortázar as well in Argentina. And it was translation that made them international. Of course, José Saramago, the famous Nobel laureate, is, is famous for having said that writers make literature national and translators make literature universal mm -hmm. or international. That's great. But uh, Pitol was from that very same generation, ironically. Um, in, in Mexico, for example, the same generation as Carlos Fuentes, uh, Jose Emilio Pacheco, Elena Poniatowska, which was re they were referred to as the mid-century generation. He was not being translated. He was trans. Well, in fact, I am the first person to translate a book-length work by Pitol. I mean, and he yeah. is the only that I'm aware of, the only Cervantes laureate who was not translated at the time at the time that he won uh, yeah. the Cervantes. So he was off the radar, and that was also due in part because he was living outside of his native Mexico at that time. He spent, I think, I want to say 27 years outside of Mexico. Uh, and so while all of these other writers were still living in their native countries, writing and being translated, he was working primarily at that time as a translator himself, living in Central Europe uh, and Eastern Europe. So he was completely off the radar of publishers and readers. He was, he was even relatively unknown in his native Mexico at the time. Yeah, in, in, incredible. And you mentioned um, that's an interesting uh, piece of his life that he lived abroad, uh, most of it. And, and if I'm not mistaken, it was in the diplomatic corps in the Mexican Foreign Service where, you know, there's also a great tradition in Latin America of of writers, um, you know, being diplomats, you know, particularly the poets, uh, Neruda uh, briefly and Octavio Paz uh, more significantly. Um, so, you know, you know, it's interesting, this, this newness factor for readers of English, um, how, how, when did you come to Pitol uh, in, in your career and, and, and what was the spark for you? You know, I think I read Pitol um, as a student, uh, one or two of his short stories. He began as a short story writer. I think one or two of his short stories were probably on my undergrad and my MA reading list. Uh, but otherwise, I did not, I did not discover Pitol until about 10 years ago. And it was through a column that Valeria Luiselli wrote for Granta. Mm -hmm. um, and this was a series of articles about the best untranslated writers. And they chose several writers to write about uh, a writer that they thought was the best untranslated writer. And Valeria chose Pitol. And so it was mm -hmm. through this 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 article that she wrote for Granta that I discovered Pitol. And of course, the obvious question was, 
why, you know, why doesn't anyone know about Pitol, which was what she was answering. That was the question yeah. she was answering. But, you know, I'm a, I was a fairly well-read uh, person, at least in Latin American literature. I have a bachelor's degree, a master's degree in Spanish. Um, I've read all of the canonical writers. Uh, I did my PhD in literary studies, so I continued to read a lot. So the question was was really pressing. Who is this person that everyone should know about and that relatively no one does know about? I, I wonder, I wonder, Rob, if I can just jump in quickly. I wonder if part of that is that 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 accursed uh, designation of a writer's writer, which seems to put these types of um, really unique uh, writers into some sort of a occlusion uh, where it's they're not available to the wider public because they're considered to be somehow, uh, you know, set apart. I mean, I'm thinking of also of Ricardo Piglia, who also was translated kind of relatively late and, you know, missed that whole boom. Um, so is that is that a designation that's that's he's known for? Or is that just something that we've put uh, as, as, you know, newly, you know, new people you know, to his work? Uh, no, in fact, he was, um, but to a very small or select group of of writers and readers, they knew Pitol, mm. um, and he he influenced a you know two generations of writers in Mexico, uh, but also in, for example, in Spain. Uh, so there were these. The select group of writers who knew who he was and and who were championing him and who were reading him and talking about him, but uh, it, as as was mentioned, Rob mentioned earlier, he was in the diplomatic corps living outside of the country. Pitol, I think, for a very long time was was more concerned about reading than he was writing, reading and translating, and that's what he was he was dedicating most of his energies to at the time. Uh, but yes, you certainly could, you could uh, classify him as a writer's writer. Yeah. And, and I, I love the way you described, you know, his, his interest in his reading. And in Roman, that's why I keep recommending the Trilogy of Memory to you, because, right. you know, y- y- your first profession in life is reader. And and so I think you would you would totally uh, feel the connection with these books, and and George, you know, um, I I the occasion for having you with us is your forthcoming uh, translation of uh, one of Pitol's novels, The Love Parade, which will be available from Deep Vellum Publishing um, early next year. So I want to talk more about that, but before we do. Um, just to jump back a little bit to the trilogy of memory, these these three books that that we've we've referred to, and um, there was a really great uh, review in the Los Angeles Review of Books, and in the um, the headline was um, "Literature as Life," which um, that's why I connected so deeply with these books. Is you know I do a little bit of writing, I have this podcast, but you know I, I have a corporate gig in marketing. Um, I have, you know, many facets to my life as we all do, but at the core of it, like a love of books and literature is what keeps me going. And that, that I don't often 
feel that even from many of the great writers. But with Batol, um, it just jumps out the page. And, and, and that's why these books, um, those three books are just, you know, so wonderful. And as Roman mentioned, we, we spent a podcast talking with um, the folks from Restless Books who had worked on the uh, um, uh, the translation of um, Ricardo Piglia's The Diaries of Emilio Renzi. And I, I got a really similar feeling, and I brought up Patol a few times in that conversation, that this idea that life, literature as life, and I'm just wondering what that, you know, kind of brings up for you when you think of Patol. Well, Patol was first and foremost a reader. Um, you mentioned earlier the difficulty in classifying his trilogy of memory. The memory being referred to there is his memory of the readings. He saw his life through the readings that he did all throughout his life. Um, and so, first of all, I would probably classify, I classify them as, as literary memoirs. Um, mm. it, and, and you were right to say that they're kind of multi-generic, you know, that they resist classification because there is literary criticism in there. But he is really writing a memoir of his readings is what he's doing and what he was doing in his life during those readings. So what was going on in his life is secondary or is the background to these readings. Um, he had um, um, a very serious disease when he was a young boy, and he was in bed for, I think, two years. He was fortunate enough to be from a, a well-to-do family that had a large library. But for the two years that he was in bed, um, he did nothing but read, and he was reading mostly 19th century classics. And so from the earliest time, you know, he has, reading was, was the most important thing in his life. Uh, and he was a very precocious young man. He was a very precocious adult. So it was just this compilation of readings that uh, accompanied him. You know, he moved to Mexico City when he was 16 to start university. Um, and fell in with the likes of Jose Emilio Pacheco, the great poet, and Carlos Monsivais, Elena Poniatowska, for example. So he, when he moved to um, Mexico City, he found this nucleus of aspiring young writers who shared this same interest with him. So reading really was the center of his life. Um, and I'm I'm afraid, as I told you earlier, I'm you know I'm prone to logorrhea, so I may have completely lost the original the point of the original question. So feel free to bring me no. rein me in. No, this is this is great. Um, you know the the other piece, which is you, you know Roman talked about um, the uh, writer's writer, and and you know we talked about how long it has taken for um, these books to come into the English language and and in North America. But can you give me a sense of like, when I think of Mexico City, prior to reading Patol, I think of Bilano, who's not a Mexican, but his, uh, his book, The Savage Detectives, you know, is set in Mexico City in the, in the 70s. And so, I mean, is there a sense like, so if I'm a, a young uh, Roberto Bilano 
you know, with the kind of beat bohemian sort of uh, sense. And I and I land in in Mexico City in 
is this uh, is this the 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 sort of the influence of the the form the formalist that, that he loved the the whole theory that you you translated an article for Lit Hub uh, I believe in two thousand fifteen that talked about Pitol's uh, being influenced by you know Mikhail Bakhtin's uh, you know, Russian formalism. Yes. Is that sort of part of that whole deal? It, yes, very much so. Uh, mm-hmm. He kind of abandoned Russian formalism, I think, later in life because he's, he admits that he simply doesn't understand the theory. Uh, but yes. <laughs> Nobody does. He, <laughs> uh, and he was a Bakhtin devotee. Um, in fact, you're going to see uh, hints of Bakhtin in the Love Parade. And in fact, The Love Parade is the first of three novels which he refers to as the Carnival Triptych. And the carnival there is the reference to Bakhtin. Uh, Pitot was fascinated by the scatological. Uh, And so you will see see Bakhtin in The Love Parade, but also in the two novels that follow, which I've translated the second one in getting ready to start working on the on the revisions and then I'll begin the third one in 2022 and so how so how are they a a triptych how how are they they, what's the is there a thematic connection is there a stylistic connection between the three well he he believes that it's it is Bakhtin the thread of Bakhtin that runs through the three of them okay specifically what Bakhtin writes on Bakhtin's theories about the carnival and about the body, especially the lower body, mm-hmm. the intestines, et cetera. And, and, and from there, um, all the plays with scatology and bodily functions, et cetera. Lovely. <laughs> uh, well, if I could just follow up on the before we actually head into maybe talking a little bit more specifically about the book, the Love Parade. But um, as far as uh, Bitol is a translator, uh, you've mentioned that he's translated. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you mentioned, but you know, I, I have my notes here: Austin, Gombrowitz, Chekhov, Henry James. Are these translations still available? Do, do, does the public know him more through his translations, so to speak, or are those translations have they been eclipsed by others or? Where does that stand, his translation work? Uh, no, his translation work has stood up very well. And I have met I have met people on social media, primarily on Twitter and Facebook, who know Pitol solely as a translator. And I'm referring to readers, even young readers from Colombia, for example, or other countries in in South America who know Pitol's translations. And, and so um, some of his translations, I would say, have become standards. Um, the University of Veracruz, I think, um, is publishing or has published all of his translations in a series. Um, every time I go to Mexico, I make it a point to look for new be told translations. So I'm slowly yeah. trying to acquire all of them that I can. But the breadth of his translations, and you mentioned some of the writers, the languages, I mean, translating from Polish, Russian, Hungarian, Chinese. Yeah. Um, and I'm convinced, I don't know for sure, but I'm convinced that some of those were actually relay translations that he, he may have been translating from translations. Um, 
because there's there's no way he could translate from Hungarian um, <laughs> uh, or Chinese. You know, he actually was yeah. in he was actually in China for I think maybe a year or two as part of his diplomatic service, but I'm certain that he wasn't translating from Chinese. Um, but certainly Eng- English was his preferred language, second language. Um, so he was translate. you know, he, he translated six Henry James novels, for example. Amazing. Um, he translated yeah. Conrad, um, and Polish, Polish was probably his, his, his third language after Spanish mm-hmm. and English. And so he was translating directly from Polish. But yeah, the, some of those translations, and I've 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 not read any of them at length. But I, I haven't had the time. I hope to be able to sit down and read read one in its entirety. Uh, but interestingly, he as a translator, he had a very different attitude that I than I uh, as a translator. He had a very different approach to translation. So it uh, the irony is not is not lost on me that, that he probably wouldn't translate his own work the way that I translate it. Hmm. I, I, do, do you, I mean, you must carry a bit of a sense of, you know, being, being the first, you know, to translate someone into certainly a, a language like English that, you know, has such a wide <laughs> effect on the world right now. I mean, I, I think of, um, you know, uh, Scott Moncrief with, with Proust. I mean, there's obviously been tons of translations since, but, but people tend to go back to that one and, and, and for its, its beauty, uh, its, its unique take on it. What's your, how do you feel about being kind of the, the first, you know, gateway, so to speak? Well, it's, my feelings are very mixed. On, on the one hand, I'm, I am tremendously honored to be uh, Pitol's translator. You know, before I began translating um, uh, The Art of Flight, uh, mm. which was the first in the, the trilogy of memory, only three or four of his short stories had been translated. That was all that existed in English. So I'm very humbled, honored, but I'm, it's also very terrifying. It's a yeah. tremendous responsibility, especially considering the attention that he has been receiving after the you know, translation of the Trilogy of Memory. I mean, that's, yeah. a, that's a tre- tremendous uh, weight to bear. And uh, I can only hope that I've done him justice. Yeah. Do you, do you know, I'm, I'm sure you do, were, uh, did he exist in some of the European languages uh, much earlier, you know, French, German, etc. Yes, um, okay. and in fact, I have copies of the French translations of all of his books. Oh, um, nice. But yes, he had been translated into French. He had been translated into Italian. He had been translated into German, uh, Polish. Mm. Also, um, mm. I'm not sure what languages beyond those, uh, but. Uh, yes, and he was almost, he was being translated almost simultaneously in some of those languages. So there wasn't a great deal of, of lag after the publication. Uh, gotcha. You know, so some of his books, for example, I'm translating books that were published in 
the 80s and 90s. Right. So considerable and, lag. Yeah, and, and that might be a great you know transition point to to look at the Love Parade. So uh, originally published uh, in 1984, if I've got that right, and uh, by Anagramma Press in in Spain, which which I think was a kind of um, well, I don't know, a, a kind of New Directions type publishing house uh, for for um, for Spain, kind of innovative um, authors and so forth. And so um, the novel itself is set in the early 70s in Mexico City. And, and the, um, the protagonist, so to speak, is a uh, historian, a Mexican historian who lives in England and who is back in Mexico City uh, doing some research. And he comes across some documents that point to a, a murder at a, at a building in Mexico City where he had lived as a child in 1942. And this was a, an interesting uh, building that had, you know, diplomatic sorts and an international residence, um, kind of a fancy place in the 40s called the Minerva Building. So he kind of sets it there and he starts, um, you know, interviewing people to, to find out more about, um, you know, this, this murder. Um, and so it has almost a kind of detective uh, sort of piece to it, which I found kind of interesting. Um, but there's also this part, maybe you can help fill us in a bit, where the part that struck me, one of the themes is this, the, the idea that in the 40s, you know, the influx of all of these foreigners, um, Europeans, Russians, because of all the tumult in Europe and Russia, you know, had a profound effect on the cultural life of um, Mexico. Can you can you kind of set the scene a little bit for uh, folks that you know aren't as familiar with what was happening in Mexico during the war? Um, I'll do my best because I would admit that I did not know a great deal about it before I began translating this novel. Uh, but translating Pitot requires lots and lots and lots of research. Um, yeah. As I mentioned earlier, Pitot arrived in Mexico City probably around 49 or 50. He was a very young man. Uh, and he lived in this neighborhood in which the building, uh, which, in which the building uh, stands. Um, so he would have been kind of an heir to that post-war period. Um, and um, he was, as I said earlier, a, a young provincial uh, boy when he arrived in Mexico City, although from a well-to-do family, he had read a great deal. His, his uh, entire family, in fact, all four of his grandparents were Italian immigrants, hmm. uh, which is one of the things that that led him to Italy. He he traveled Italy uh, quite extensively, but he arrived in Mexico City, which was actually you know much more cosmopolitan than people give it credit for. And Pitol already at sixteen, seventeen years old was quite a cosmopolitan young man, if nothing else, because of the breadth. Of his of the readings that he was doing, um, yeah. so he became very interested in this era, this period in Mexico City uh, during World War II. 
He also does a lot of research for the novels that he writes. And so he begins to write about the research and the interest in this topic in the trilogy of memory and the art of flight and in the magician of Vienna. So in 1940s, this is actually set in a building which is called the Rio de Janeiro building. I don't know why he renames it in the novel. He, he renames it the Minerva, but it's called the, the Rio de Janeiro building. It's also known as the House of the Witches. Um, and I've, I've been to the building. Every time I go to Mexico City, I go to the building just so I can be in touch with it and, and imagine Pitol having walked around the building. Um, it's kind of this scary looking building that is, is very kind of out of place in what's become a very modern, um, modern uh, neighborhood in Mexico City. But yes, that building itself was home to diplomats from uh, a variety of European countries. Um, and because Mexico, if I'm not mistaken, for all intents and purposes, remained neutral during World War II, um, the, the Nazis were at work in Mexico City, uh, other, you know, there was all kinds of just international intrigue, spies who were in Mexico City. And so that's a portion of the history that he found um, mm -hmm. very exciting. And so that's really about all I can say about it. Yeah. Um, I wonder if he renamed the building Minerva because of the, the whole mythic element of you know Minerva being sort of the sort of a, a strategic war kind of uh, goddess or something to do with, with, you know, this whole spying element of, of, in the book. I mean, the, the building itself is almost like a character in the novel. Right? Well, yeah, totally. Yes, it, it is. In fact, at the beginning of, of the, the book, I have a list of characters and he does not have this in his, in his, uh, in the Spanish oh. edition. But, but I decided to create a list of characters, and the first character that I list is the Minerva building. Right. And by the way, it's yes. a very, very helpful list because it, it does get oh, a little confusing for, for a reader, I think. You know, it's, it was, I, I kept referring back to it, so I think it was a very good decision. It, it almost reminds me of the, uh, you know, the 19th century Russian novels where, you know, you have all of the, all of the names to begin and the, uh, the, I forget the, uh, the patronym Roman, the, right. right. There's the, the various, uh, complex namings, right. uh, of Russian characters. Well, yeah. Um, and that would and, have been, and, that would have been something that was very, fam that was very familiar to be told. And I think it, hmm. actually I was thinking of this very same thing at, when I decided to do it, but also because as I was translating, I would forget who someone was mm. or not who yeah. they were, but what is this character's relationship to, you know, to another character? So I thought if yes. I was getting lost during the translation, that certainly the readers would benefit from it. Right. Yeah. That, that, that as a reader, right. You, 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 you know, each chapter often brings you into a new sort of interview situation with um, Miguel de Solar and you, you meet, a new series of relationships of characters. And yeah, I found myself 
sometimes going back and forth. But isn't that part of the? To, it to seems to be like it's connection. sorry, Rob. It just seems to be like it's part of the design. Yep. It's part of this this um, ambiguity, this sort of partly being lost in the story, uh, is is part of the both the the pleasure of the reading and also the the kind of the annoyance of it. You know, the like what what's going on. Uh, but it's it's I think it's built into the very fabric of the book on purpose. Yes, Pitol Pitol did not like to anything definitive. He did not want to. <laughs> he wanted to make his his readers work, uh, and he also did not want to give them easy answers. He did not want to resolve yeah. anything for his readers. Uh, so he wanted to leave things ambiguous. He wanted to leave things open to interpretation. So that's very much part of the structure. And that fits very well with the detective novel. Pitol thought that the, yes. the detective genre was very underrated. He had a great deal of respect for the detective genre. Uh, and he read a great deal of it. Again, the, the the whole parallel with with Piglia, Ricardo Piglia, and and you yeah. mentioned that he's he has Italian ancestors, which is the same thing with Piglia. So, <laughs> what's yeah. what's going on? There? That's what I was thinking too, Roman. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I was thinking the same thing. And, and also the the fact that each one of these chapters is an interview with a di different character. This is also part of his fascination with with Bakhtin, with the polyphony that in uh, that ba in mm. Bakhtin or that Bakhtin wrote about, uh, which was one of the interesting aspects of, of translating this novel from having translated his trilogy of memory that was all written in Pitol's voice. So, you know, I had to feel mm. that I was very confident that I knew what Pitol's voice was. And by the time I'd, I'd translated the, you know, the third of the trilogy, I felt, you know, I know I know Pitol's voice inside and out. For example, someone submitted uh, a manuscript to Deep Ellum, who is my pu publisher, of some essays, because Pitol wrote a lot of essays. Um, and my publisher sent this manuscript to me and said, what do you think of this? And I'll admit, as, you know, I, I, by this point, I thought, I'm a Pitol's translator. Who, who dared, you know, who would dare translate <laughs> Pitol? But as I'm reading it, I, I'm, you know, I'm thinking, this is not Pitol's voice. And of course, I have this idea of what Pitol's voice in, is in, in my mind. I think that I found his voice. So, you know, it's hard for me to be unbiased, but I'm reading this and I would say, Pitol would never use this word. Well, you know, mm. what is this translator thinking? But all of this to say, when I, be, when I began to translate the novel, you know, there are multiple voices here. And yes, they are all Pitol's characters, but each one of these characters has his or her own voice that I had to then find and try to imitate. Yes, and, and, and I, I want to actually read a passage which I think speaks a little bit to, you know, this theme of um, hidden identities, uh, you know, stories within a story and, and, and some of the, um, the, 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 both the challenge and pleasure of, of, of reading the book. So this is a, a passage here, um, and it is describing um, uh, Miguel de Solar, the protagonist. He's just had a, a meeting uh, with uh, Delfina, one of the characters in the book who was present uh, during the murder years ago. So, and again, I think this 
touches some of the themes. Um, so, quote, he read for several hours a book by Dickens, our mutual friend, which he took from a shelf in the living room. He thought of Ida Verfel, about the comments he heard Emma, her daughter, repeat about the Garden of Juan Fernandez, a play by Tirso de Molina, where no one was who they claimed to be, in which the characters unfolded continuously, adopting the most absurd masks, as if it were the only way of living with others. The same thing happened in Dickens' novel, the same impersonation by characters, false names, fictional biographies. He remembers the first time he lunched at Delphina's house. She talked about her thesis on the split personality in the Victorian novel. That is, concealment, the mask, the confusion of true identity. Why did that point always come up? Where was it pointing? Who was pretending to be who they were not? And so I, I love that because of, for me, it was a thematic hook that I could think about. But I also love in the true Pitol reader fashion that, right, he, he, he works in Dickens in the Victorian novel and. Um, so I really love that passage. Uh, thank you very much uh, for reading that and, and so well. Um, yes, that is very Pitol or Pitolian. Um, <laughs> there's a great deal of intertextuality in Pitol. And sometimes it's, it's this obvious. Well, he will, you know, he will say Dickens or Tirso de Molina, but sometimes you don't know when he is kind of, sticking this intertextuality in and or that it is even intertextuality but because he was such a prolific reader uh he feels comfortable doing this and i think he does it with great aplomb and that's why very often even when he's writing fiction his fiction turns into literary literary criticism Lovely. I was thinking. Yeah, I was thinking lovely. of the the fact that he also translated Robert Musil, and and his own work, Batol's work, has that kind of unfinished or non sort of. There's no definitive ending. There's no definitive anything, and that reminded me again of Musil. So I think his reading really informed his writing. It seems like, and it's it's probably um, many scholars can can do some interesting work about uh, untangling his writing and the various influences of, of the reading that he's done uh, in that writing. In, indeed. Um, and he is beginning to be um, studied more uh, on an academic or scholarly level. Ignacio Sanchez uh, Prado, who is at, at um, Washington University in St. Louis is one of the leading, if not the leading, Pitol scholar um, and has written about him quite a bit. Um, he is one of, he, he argues, for example, you know, it's, it's easy to say that so-and-so in, in the 20th century was a cosmopolitan, but Pitol was not cosmopolitan because he was reading Joyce and, and Ignacio says everyone was reading Joyce. He was cosmopolitan for these other re writers that he was reading that no one was mm. reading. Mm. Uh, and mm. you, you know who, who Pitol's uh, preferred writers are because he talks about them and refers to them. And Musil is an example of that. He has an essay on Musil in, I don't remember which, I want to say The Art of Fly, but it may be The Magician of Vienna. 
Um, yeah. So yes, you're exactly right. Yeah. And and, and Roman, I, I I can say that um, you know uh, George, I've known Roman for you know forty years, and we've been reading together, so I I, I know his taste really well. Um, you know, the interesting thing about reading the trilogy of memory is that he writes so passionately about the writers he loves, which reminds me a lot of you. You know, you're more the heart person. I'm more the head person. And and he writes so passionately about people that I had kind of avoided here and there, like Joseph Conrad, The Heart of Darkness. I was like, yeah, I never wanted to read that. But after reading Pitol, you know, I'm like, I got to read Conrad. Mm. And then I had a, a really profound experience reading The Heart of Darkness. And I was like, why didn't I ever you know, spend time uh, with Conrad. And, and so th- that's the piece that I think, you know, you would love those books in particular. I, I, I've, uh, I've dipped into them. I tell you, passion. Because, yeah, I've dipped into them and it's, it's definitely something I'm going to follow up on. But I mean, it's like, you know, it's, it's, I think all the writers that we love are, have that. The, the head is encased in a very hard bone, you know, the skull, and it's hard to get through, <laughs> but the heart is soft, you know, it's a soft thing. And then if you just open it up, it's wonderful. And I think this really the only way to approach great literature is through passion, not through the intellect. The intellect, of course, is, you know, mm. helps, but it's not the, mm. it's not the icebreaker. You got to lead with the heart, I think. And, mm. uh, Pitol had writers that he returned to uh, several times and that he reread. But he also confesses that there are writers that there are works that he's never read that 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 he feels that he should have just because everyone else was reading them Uh, or writers works that he began to read and it was at a moment in his life if it was associated with something very negative for example a surgery then he would put the writer down and never return to to him or her but he was very passionate about the writers uh, that he that he was fond of, and he championed them. And one of the things that I had to do translating the trilogy of memory was read all of these works that I had not read. Uh, yeah. And it would start, for example, Pitola was bad about uh, quoting someone and saying perhaps maybe who said it and and if I was lucky what work it came from, but there was no bibliography or footnote to tell me where right. it was. So I had to I had to track these works down. And then once I, I found the quote, I would thought, well, I'm already in the book. Why don't I read some of it? Uh, so I say, for example, in the introduction to The Art of Flight, in my translator's note, actually, that, that translating Pitol was like a humanistic education. I felt like... Yeah. I was getting a PhD in comparative literature by translating him. Oh, it's wonderful. I bet. I bet. George, George is there a, um, a university or an institution uh, that has all of his papers and all his library at the end of his life? Is, is there anywhere you can go to, to spend time with, with those uh, personal books and documents? It's either Yale or Princeton, and I'm, in, I'm embarrassed oh. now that I don't know exactly which. Okay, but that, um, that's great to hear that they're, um, they're, they're safely together. Um, you know, uh, just a, a footnote that um, is not connected to the, our immediate conversation here, but it occurred to me a little bit when we were talking about 
the detective novel aspect. Um, I, I had a, as I'm reading The Love Parade, I was thinking a lot about um, uh, the Spanish writer Javier Marias and his um, Your Face Tomorrow trilogy because of the, um, the, the spy novel, detective novel kind of genre theme uh, within those books as well. So I, I, I wonder how familiar or unfamiliar uh, Marias would have been with um, this novel when it was published in 1984, I would suspect he he would probably have known about it. Um, but I, I do want to um, kind May I of, say something? Uh, please. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier that this was published by Anagramma, which you're very right. It is very much a New Directions kind of press. Um, by the way, I was told by someone that New Directions had actually considered on translating Pitol several years ago oh, and mm. passed and that they oh. came to regret that decision. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. But um, Pitol was actually the, the um, Love Parade, I think, won the second Heralde Prize, Heralde Prize, which the publisher mm. of, of Anagrama was Jorge Heralde. Um, mm. And he and Pitol were very good friends. Um, and so Pitol was being published in Spain before he was being published in uh, Mexico. And he had, he was very involved. He was even doing translations for Anagrama uh, at, mm. the, at that time. So I'm, I'm, I, I would venture to guess that, yes, uh, the writer you were speaking of was aware of Pitol and of this, yeah. of this novel. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Um, so I, I do want to ask, um, as we start to, you know, roll towards, uh, the end of our hour here, um, you know, who are some of the, um, uh, writers in the Spanish language who are younger and coming up that, that are exciting you? I think you mentioned, uh, Valeria Lucelli, who I have not read, but she is on my my list. Uh, we, we had the pleasure of interviewing uh, an Ecuadorian writer, Maro Javier Cardenas, uh, who has some really wonderful books. Um, our, our followers love recommendations. Is, is there anyone that... Uh, and again, we also have, I think, folks who, who read in Spanish. So even if it's untranslated, uh, what are you excited about? Um, I'm really excited about this Colombian writer who has published a, a very short novel called Limbo, Limbo. Uh, his name is John Vetter, but he is Colombian, despite his his name sounding yeah. very American or British. Uh, yeah. And I hope to be able to translate that. I'm getting ready to start a two year um, artist residency where I'll be translating uh, nonstop for two years, and so oh. I hope to, I hope to be able to to translate that. But again, John Vetter. Um, and the title is Limbo. Um, there are, uh, there's a young Mexican writer, um, Daniel, uh, Saldana, uh, who is very good. He's been translated by Christina McSweeney. Um, in fact, I think he's going to be attending with me the launch of the, um, the Love Parade on January 13th. Um, and Luis Jorge Boone, who is a young Mexican writer, 
Um, he is partners with Fernanda Melchor, who I'd also invite everyone to read. Um, mm -hmm. Her novel, Hurricane Season, uh, is an incredible read. Um, and her newest novel, uh, Paradise, uh, which I think is almost coming out simultaneously in translation. Uh, but Luis Jorge Boone, I think, is one of the most, um, I would say, the best untranslated writer in Mexico right now. Uh, I translated a collection of his short stories several years ago called Cannibal Night. Uh, but to my knowledge, he's a poet, short story writer, and novelist. But to my knowledge, nothing else has been, no other book has been translated into English. Uh, and then Alberto Chimal, um, who is primarily a short story writer, Mexican writer. Um, I translated his novel. Um, the Spanish title was Los Esclavos, but we chose not to title it The Slaves. It's um, the most, oh my gosh, I can't even remember the title of my own translation. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, anyway, Alberto, I'm sorry, what were you going to say? Oh, no, please, please. No, Alberto uh, writes primarily very light science fiction and fantasy, but he is an incredible writer, very, very prolific, um, and very, very broadly read, widely read in in Mexico. And a lot of his short stories have been translated by both myself and Lawrence Schimmel, who is a wonderful translator. Um, but other than my the one novel, The Most Fragile Objects, um, none of his longer works have been translated. So those are the, some of the people that I would recommend. Wonderful. And yeah, our, our, our followers will, will eat this up. And I, I think Roman, probably a great, like our, our friend uh, who has a blog called uh, The Untranslated, mm, yes. which is a, a really important um, platform for uh, global literature that is untranslated into English. And it's called theuntranslated.wordpress.com. So that's, you know, a great resource. And, and George, if you haven't popped onto that uh, blog, it's really worth uh, your time. It's really fascinating. I'll check into um, that, and I'll I'll feed yeah. him some I'll feed him some names. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think yeah, I think he would love that. Um, and we don't even need to tag him. We know he's a a, a loyal listener, so he'll be listening. Um, well, this has been wonderful. You know, what one quick thing that occurred to me is any chance we would see a biography in English? Uh, you know, uh, in the future, or is that you know, have you heard any rumblings or? <laughs> um, you know, I wish I had the ability to do that because I think I think I, bet. I think a biography is necessary. Um, I, I agree. I mean, that life sounds maybe, fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I, I I mean, I want to write the darn thing. Yeah. Um, perhaps uh, Michael Schusler, who was the biographer of Elena Poniatowska, maybe I can interest him in doing it uh, because I, th I think it needs someone who, who has a talent and expertise in writing biography, but I, I agree wholeheartedly. It, it, it needs to be, to be written. I am hoping to be able to go to Pitol's um, archives 
and do some research. Mm. I would like to work on, because I imagine his correspondence is just absolutely vast. I would like to do a book of his correspondence. I came across mm. a letter recently um, that was published in the Mexican press uh, that I didn't know existed, but uh, it piqued my curiosity as to the other things that might be out there that people might be interested in reading. Wonderful. It's like, it's like you're uh, unearthing a, a, you know, a buried uh, <laughs> treasure, you know, this is wonderful. Or very much, you know, like, like uh, Miguel del Solar in The Love Parade. Mm, yes. Yeah, nice. <laughs> very, very nice. Um, well, we, we've kind of uh, run out of time. It's, it's gone pretty quick. Uh, it was a fascinating Roman, conversation. Any, any last words? No, I'm just really, I've really enjoyed yeah. this. Uh, it's um it's opened up a lot of interesting avenues of thinking and, and further research into yeah. literature. So that's just, it's just, thank you so much, George. Really appreciate it. No, thank you yep. very much. Uh, you're very kind okay. to invite me and to, to um, tolerate my Lagarea. <laughs> <laughs> we, we loved it. You're, you're perfectly, uh, you're one of us <laughs> on this show. Um, so I want to remind uh, listeners that um, uh the Love Parade by Sergio Pitol, translated by uh, George Henson, will be available uh, in January. Do we do we have a, a, a drop date, George, for that book? Um, I well, the launch date is January thirteenth. Um, so I know that there's a release date uh, online, um, and I won't plug one particular book's. Uh, book conglomerate, but um, <laughs> I know if you go to, you know, you can obviously find it at, at Deep Vellum. Uh, the launch yeah. is going to be through Third Place Books in Seattle. And again, that's on January 13th. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Um, well, we, we hope that um, as things continue to come out, George, that you will continue to come back and, and talk to us about these books. And, and um, you know, we we're on a mission to make sure these, this writer is, is more well-known and it's one of the joys of having this podcast. Um, so this has been great. And uh, again, remind folks, uh, George Henson has been with us. George, uh, your Twitter handle so folks can follow you. Is Un Poeta Loco. So that's you. There it is. You heard it there. Yeah. U-N-P-O-E-T-A-L-O-C-O. Beautiful. And uh, you can follow us on Twitter at feel bookish and we're also on instagram you can find us there so thanks for listening thank you roman thank you george and as always thank you heston for everything you do in the in the background there thank you okay. gentlemen. bye guys bye, -bye. bye, -bye.